Here's a few exciting scenes from tonight's episode of The Tom Gully Show. Wes Gehring has written 35 books. He's been a who's who in America member or whatever you are when you're in that since 2012, columnist for USA Today magazine. Amongst his works are award-winning biographies of James Dean, Carol Lombard, Steve McQueen, Red Skelton, and Charlie Chaplin, and that's just amongst others. He writes serious books for people serious about film, but they're also very witty and insightful. And uh, he's also the owner of the most incredible personal library I have ever seen in my life. Welcome, <laughs> welcome to the show. Thanks for that very flattering introduction. Uh, it's just it's well earned. When you sit down, you've written 30, is it 35 now, or is it still at 34? Um, I just had one come out last month. <laughs> oh, wow. It, it's called Movie Comedians of the 50s, uh, Defining a New Era of Big Screen Comedy. So I like the titles of your, your books because you didn't call this one Black Laughter or some jazzy, <laughs> you know, uh, trendy thing. When you, at this point in your uh, writing career, when you sit down to write one of these, what excites you now? I mean, you've covered all the topics. You've done the, the, the genre examination. You know, you've done yeah, so yeah. much. You've even written a, I mean, your James Dean book was incredible. Uh, the, 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 the Red Skelton book was incredible. What, what gets you excited and what draws you to your next title? Well, I could, I, anymore, I just try to go somewhere that I'm, I'm really going to enjoy, but I don't think it, it's been done and I get excited about it. Like, right now, we don't need another book on Buster Keaton per se, but, um, and he, since he's reached a parody sort of with Chaplin, as much as I hate to say that, but he really speaks to us more than Chaplin. I mean, Chaplin speaks to the heart, and Keaton is more existentialistic, you know, uh, my one of the best endings of a Keaton film is is college. He gets the girl, and it, it should end there. Happy ending. Uh, like it should be Harold Lloyd. That the end. Right. But then there's a dissolve to this angry couple with millions of kids around them, and then there's a dis, another dissolve, and there's this old couple who are probably haven't spoken in 50 years, and then there's another dissolve to a cemetery with plots next to each other. I mean, he's He's wonderful. I mean, he really speaks to the the dark slant. And in the in the 20s, obviously, he was a great comedian, but he was way behind Harold Lloyd and, and uh, Chaplin in terms of popularity. And so the book I'm writing right now is, I was curious to, I mean, I have to put it in the parameters of, you know, what he's important now and what we think of him and things like that. You have to have that framework. But what I'm doing largely now is, writing a book on Buster Keaton as if um, he, did, he did 12 features that are really 12 silent great features between 1923 and 1929. I'm writing the book as if it was like maybe written in 1932. I'm just trying to deal as much as possible with reviews and sources and stuff from the 20s. And it's just remarkable, this, this stuff I'm finding. Due to some violent content, parental discretion is advised. <laughs> It's time, America. Mr. and Mr. North and South American, all the ships at sea, let's go to press. So sit back, buckle in, place your tray table in its upright locked position, and get ready for big-time radio, friends. 
It's time for... Good evening. It is Tuesday, January 10th, 2017, episode 252. I'm Tom Gully, and tonight on the Tom Gully Show. Well, you know, I got out a pencil and some paper, and I did the math, and I've known esteemed film author and historian Dr. Wes Gehring for almost 35 years. And in that time, he's written over 30 the world's most recognized and award-winning books on the subject of film. And there are two things that impress me most about The Good Doctor. Number one is the way he expands the notion of film history and criticism by associating it with all other forms of media and popular culture. Any discussion with him totally expands your perception of what film is and the influences upon it and the sheer fun of discussing it with another person. Secondly, he's simply one of the most awesome human beings on the planet. Funny, informed, intelligent. Every interaction is a benefit. And uh, he also just happens to be an incredible educator and author. We are so happy and so proud to present our discussion with film author and historian Wes Gehring tonight on The Tom Gully Show. Ladies and gentlemen, the chief hope of our enemies is to divide the United States along racial and religious lines and thereby conquer us. Let's not spread prejudice. A divided America is a weak America. Through our behavior, we encourage the respect of our children and make them better neighbors to all races and religions. Remind them that being good neighbors has helped make our country great and kept her free. Thank you. You're listening to The Tom Gully Show. You'll find our snack bar chock full of good things to eat and drink. Tasty, tempting hot dogs, thirst-quenching soft drinks, fresh, crunchy popcorn. You've plenty of time, so visit the snack bar now. Just send an email to tom at thetomgullyshow.com. Wes Gehring has written 35 books. He's been a who's who in America member or whatever you are when you're in that since 2012, columnist for USA Today magazine. Amongst his works are award-winning biographies of James Dean, Carol Lombard, Steve McQueen, Red Skelton, and Charlie Chaplin, and that's just amongst others. He writes serious books for people serious about film, but they're also very witty and insightful. And uh, he's also the owner of the most incredible personal library I have ever seen in my life. Welcome <laughs> welcome to the show. 
Thanks for that very flattering introduction. Uh, it's just it's well earned. Now, this latest book that I hold in my hand, uh, genre-busting dark comedies of the 1970s, 12 American films, is... I just I love all your books, but this one I really, 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 really loved because uh, they're movies from sort of when I first started watching movies. Um, and I guess the first thing to ask you is what is a dark comedy? Um, well, when I was first started out studying comedies, I think one of uh, one of my professors said it best that, any genre that um, includes Jerry Lewis and Ernest Lubitsch, meaning you know broad slapstick to sophisticated comedy, is just too broad. It doesn't really mean anything. So that kind of gave me a uh, a catalyst for my career. I decided I wanted to break down comedy into several, whether you want to call them other comedy genres or subgenres, and uh, it ended up me writing six books on different types of comedy. And uh, the quickest way to say what is a dark comedy is to think of Frank Capra, 180 degrees difference. Um, it essentially means that um, there's an ever-presence of, of death. Um, the world is inherently absurd, uh, either by man's making or just it's absurd in general. And that people are inherently... Now, don't kill the messenger here, but are inherently bad. Or, if not bad, they have uh, negative tendencies that they're more likely to follow. Whereas in a Capra world, you know, everything turns out okay, people are inherently good, and we have happy endings. Uh, and then there are other comedy genres in between, but those would be the two poles of comedy. The the populist Capra kind of feel-good movie, and then the, the dark comedy, the apocalypse now kind of thing yeah is there something different about the laughter that you get from a dark comedy i mean it's not that when you're watching it you're 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 being amused it's humorous but it's is it a little different than than other kinds of comedy well my even to this very day a lot of times my students some of my students are really like their comedy um it's it's um it's scary because well, their comedy used to be um, kind of a stepchild, and it was considered sick comedy. And so I think a lot of people, I always tell my students, if you're laughing in a theater and there aren't very many other people laughing, or maybe you're the only one laughing, you feel a little strange <laughs> sometimes. And it's just because um, this is a genre that pushes the envelope. And all genres are kind of morphing slowly into something else. But dark comedy is different because its central purpose is to essentially uh, flirt with offending you. And uh, so whereas, say, screwball comedy started out just being it's comedic because people are screwy and then we, we had to add ghosts in films like Topper and celebrities, uh, you know, like Runaway Bride and stuff like that. But they're not controversial. But dark comedy continues to be more controversial because we get deadened to what was shocking five years ago or ten years ago or something like that. So in a way, it's continually morphing into ongoing offensiveness to a lot of people, not everybody. But uh, I think it's... Um, uh, 
if if there was like any part of the book that I thought really captured it, it's it's essentially a, um, let me see if I can remember just about how I phrased it. Something along the lines of that it's like the bravest genre that it tosses away all the crutches which prop up most people. And again, I don't want to kill the messenger. This is just what it is. Um, because everything else sort of suggests it's all going to turn out okay. And this particular genre just says, this is it. There ain't no more, so deal with it. And um, most people, and I, and I don't, you know, I'm not criticizing people. Uh, people need need God or they, they need an institution or they need some security because, you know, if you if you think about stuff, I always tell you know the what's the what's the line the um, you know the unexamined life isn't worth living, but you need Prozac with that for a lot of people, <laughs> and, uh, uh, and uh, you know so people don't want to really deal with it, you know, and um, that's that's why I think it's the bravest genre, and I think I you know I like sentimental populism and all this kind of stuff too, but I feel most attuned to the fact that just you know, deal with it. Um, don't don't hide behind stuff. And it's it's taken me most of my life to just kind of admit to that that this is it. Enjoy it. And a lot of people say, "Well, that's depressing. You must be morose. Why don't you just jump off a bridge or something?" No, I want to hold on to this. I mean, I think I think it's a I'm a secular humanist. You know, you do the right thing because. Um, it's the right thing to do. You're not going to get, you know, 30 virgins or however many virgins in heaven, or you're not going to be threatened by hell or something. You just do it because it's the right thing to do. And uh, so anyway, that's my philosophy of life. Um, and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to hang on uh, and enjoy it. Right. This is it. And celebrate it. If, if indeed there is nothing afterwards, you, you should make the best of what you have here now, you know, living and interacting yeah. as, as, yeah. Uh, as you go along. What what makes the the seventies dark comedies unique? Uh, not that there were, I mean, I don't think Hollywood was sitting around trying to crank out dark comedies in the the forties and fifties necessarily, uh, and maybe there were a few more of them in the seventies. And I have some questions about that later. But what makes the the seventies dark comedies different than other eras of dark comedy? Well, it, it took forever for. Um people will recognize like the great dictators say as a or Monsieur Verdu, two chaplains films that were dark comedies. Um, and by the sixties with, um, Dr. Strangelove usually gets credit for pulling dark comedy kind of the center stage and everything. Um, but it's still okay. It's center stage, but people are still a little shell shocked with what is this? genre why are we dealing with it so much and in the 70s there was just kind of an explosion of lots of dark comedies and i think it was fueled by the fact that um you know um at the beginning of the 60s there was so much hope i mean there was this beautiful young family it was camelot there was you know the peace corps were reaching out um you know what kennedy's you know a new generation of Americans born in this century and that, and that kind of thing, all that kind of hope. And by the end of the sixties with the assassinations and all the escalating Vietnam war and Nixon in the white house and everything like that, uh, a Japanese scholar said that Americans maybe are most attuned to dark comedy in a sense, because they're so friggin' 
optimistic at times that when the optimism crashes and burns, it, it crashes and burns, whereas much of the rest of the world is is maybe a little bit more realistic about, um, you know, life isn't perfect. It, they don't live in a capital world, you know. Um, so uh, I think that's that's why at the end of the 60s, we had, you know, we had hit the... Can I say shitter on this? Oh, all um, day, we, all day long. Uh, <laughs> we, had, we had really crashed and ruined, and, and we were now prepared for um, a lot of dark comedies. doesn't mean every film suddenly was a dark comedy, but um, there were a lot of dark comedies. But dark comedy is sort of like art house films. You know, nobody wants to go to a film that's maybe going to be a downer for them if they're going on a date or something like that, or art house film. They don't want to really think deep thoughts. Uh, they want to just relax after a hard week. But um, so dark comedies kind of get uh, subtextualized into other stuff. And that, that was my other thing that I wanted to do with, uh, not that other um, earlier films didn't have multi-layers and you could read different genres into them, but I felt that I wanted to pick 12 movies that I felt were dark comedies, but that wouldn't immediately pop up as dark comedies. I, probably my favorite film in the bunch is All That Jazz, because it's a musical, isn't it? Yeah. But yet it's a musical about death, you know? Yeah, um, that's, I was going to ask you about that one. That was one of my, one of my biggest uh, questions. The, the thing I also noticed uh, in, in some of these is that they were kind of a, a style of film that they had them before, uh, but but these these are a few of these are real strong like a character study. They're not even, you know, uh, you know uh, maybe little big man. But the, but the other thing is, the seventies I think are you know right following the sixties a time when we were looking at history and in many cases a history Hollywood created for us with the war movie, right. the western, right. you know. And, uh, and some of these things and taking a real uh, more of an objective look that it's, you know, it's not all rah, rah. And, you know, the kid from the Bronx gets right. it in the, the third reel. It, you know, there were real questions about the establishment and what we actually did uh, that, that permeate a few of these films. Yeah, I think um, of all the, the national cinemas that, outside of the United States that you study, I, th I think the French New Wave um, had a huge impact on this. And as I do in the introduction, you know, this isn't about New American Cinema or the French New Wave or whatever, but um, the French New Wave was based kind of on, um, you know, breaking some rules, saying we don't need, to, we might have charismatic characters in a movie, but we might not necessarily want to be them or like them even sometimes. They're essentially anti-heroes. And then the French New Wave said, hey, we don't necessarily need a specific plot line. You know, it, it, life isn't like that. I mean, life is a rough cut and then you die. You know, there's never a finished product there. And then finally, life isn't, you know, it, it's not a happy ending. <laughs> yeah. And uh, no, um, no, oh, Nobody gets out alive. Yeah, yeah. And um, the classic Hollywood movies are just the opposite. I mean, we have heroes we have a more of a straight narrative you can follow and it ends happily you know and you know there are lots of influences on dark comedy but i think french new wave gave us kind of a format and it, it heavily influenced um what's often called new american cinema in the 70s which uh, isn't this isn't a history of that but it draws heavily upon that so um well the 12 films and this would be like a great film festival 
uh, MASH, Catch-22, obviously uh, breaking the genre of war films, Little Big Man, just destroying the, the Western viewpoint of most Hollywood films, Harold and Maude, Cabaret, which uh, takes the musical to task, Slaughterhouse-Five, another war film, Chinatown, which we can talk about later, Love and Death, which is one of my very favorite movies of all time and by far my favorite um, Woody Allen movie uh, or Bob Hope movie, whichever way you choose to look at it. Yeah, yeah, I think I, I always tell my students it's, it's sort of like Bob Hope and Enigma Bergman movie. I mean, it's, um, he even, you know, it's just... He uses lines of hopes in that movie. I mean, he... he yeah, yeah. He, um, um, yeah, it's... I don't know if it's his greatest film, but it's it's probably my favorite too. And I I think it's it's sort of like Chaplin's The Circus. That's not his greatest film, but it's his funniest film. And I think Love and Death, whether you think it's his greatest film or not, it's I would fight to the death to say it's Woody Allen's funniest film. Yeah, um, it, it's it's uh, he's using all of his skills in that one. Uh, one Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Annie Hall, being there and all that jazz now i think mash and catch 22 we get little big man's pretty opposite what genre is harold and maude breaking um it's it's playing with several different things i think um it's playing with in a way um uh how did i put it um I, I hesitate when that, when I teach it in the class because students write everything down and then it all gets screwed up somehow. But um, it's playing with screwball comedy in the sense that screwball comedy is often that pyramid where there's kind of like this anti-heroic male and then there's this sort of ball-busting female that's either a fiancé or a wife. And then this free spirit comes into the the, the realm. And in, in Harold and Maude, instead of the, you know, the controlling woman... Um, who's like a mother, it literally is his mother. And then the free-spirited woman that comes in is great, it's just that she's 60 years older than he is. Um, it also does the, uh, you know, it kind of does a number on or does a uh, variation on a coming-of-age movie. Um, and it, it just plays, I think, with... Um, those would be the two that I think would jump out the most. Um, but having said that, um, it's, the, it's the closest one to what I would now call... Um, dark comedy light because it doesn't fit the parameters of what other dark comedies were doing at the time because at the end even though um, uh, Maude has committed suicide um, spoiler alert but it's been out 50 years so <laughs> live with it I guess um, um, it's it's got a, a sense of optimism a little bit you know you think Harold now has maybe, you know, he's playing the banjo, and like Steve Martin says, you know, you can't, you can't not like the banjo and uh, feel funny, something along those particular lines. Yeah. So, and we're getting a lot of those now in the 21st century. Uh, you know, I, I, I think uh, Little Miss Sunshine, uh, Sunshine Cleaners, you know, uh, movies like that uh, are kind of doing the same sort of thing. They're, they're darkly comic, but they, they give you a little bit of hope at the end. It's just a new riff on um, dark comedies like everything else. It's morphing in different directions. Well, my favorite uh, Polanski film is, is Chinatown, and it's one of my favorite movies, period. Uh, but how is that breaking the detective genre, so to speak? Is it just the... I mean, we've always had the the sort of gritty detective tale. Is it the fact that hey, the, there are things going on behind our back, and you know you can never beat the system, or or what? What exactly? Well, yeah. 
this is the one I had. A lot of my friends were, um, they're saying, no, no, Wes, you can't put that one in there because that's just, you know, that's, that's um, you know, a revisionist. Uh, uh, it's, it's, it's a postmodern film noir, or whatever you want to call it, but you got to stick it with just film noir. But to me, it's all dark. Um, all film noir has, like, dark humor in it, but this one has always struck me as, more dark comedy than anything else because it's so completely over the top in terms of, you know, the water commissioner drowns during a drought and he, um, the guy going for the power is named Noah and it, it just goes on and on like that. And I cannot look at it like I look at other um, film noirs just because it, it constantly seems to want to be a dark comedy to me. It's like a film noir that's just, busting out in different directions. So I had to put that one in there. And and then, quite frankly, this is, I mean, I, I never write a book I don't want to write. I mean, I've never written a book, you know, on commission or thinking, oh, maybe this is the latest craze or something. But this book, I didn't really give a damn what anybody thought of it or if anybody would read it. This was kind of like me just, this is how I feel. You know, this is, this is me revisiting my past and uh, letting it all hang out, and it was really—they're all written for me in the sense that I want to. Well, a million authors have said, you know, um, if you want to write a good book, then write, write, write your, what you like to read. And this is the kind of stuff I like to read, and this is who I am. So um, it just never seemed to stay on the rails completely for me as a film noir, and that's why I put it in there. Well, it, I put it in there too to kind of mess with people, also. <laughs> well, and uh, well done. And the the thing about that film is, and and maybe some of the better dark comedies is that you feel like they're funny, but you don't laugh. You, I mean, it's Polanski's movies always have this sort of underlying sardonic thing going on in them, and in this one, maybe it's because it's Nicholson and and the, you know how he does things on screen, but it is. It just seems like a movie where you're, 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 you're smiling during the whole proceeding because of, of sort of the situations he's in, what he's doing, uh, Polanski himself with his famous nose cutting scene and all that stuff. It's, yeah. it's still, it's, yeah. it's somehow it's funny. It's like, and, and I think people that watched mash the TV show, which is great in its own way. Uh, they forget that, that the movie mash was not slapstick yucks. You know, it it really was a you know the the ironic part of of what a dark comedy I suppose is. But um, w one flew over the cuckoo's nest. I'm assuming it's the genre it breaks is the medical. You know, all of our our former you know the interns or or some other yeah, medical. Yeah, or, or the whole idea of, of you know what is a problem film, and uh, it, it gets into some. For a general viewer, um, non-traditional genres um, that maybe wouldn't be as obvious to the the general um, uh, audience member, um, but it, it seems to do the same thing to me. Um, that uh, in some ways, um, a couple of the other ones like all that jazz really play into being. Some of these are just playing with art house objects, and they. They can't, like Woody Allen has said in interviews, that all of his movies are essentially art house films. It's just that you look at Woody Allen, and he's such a uh, funny-looking guy. <laughs> and he has said this. I mean, I'm not, I'm not trying to mock him or anything like that. He said he just, because if he puts himself in a movie, it's a personality comedy, no matter what, 
you know, whether whether he's doing a parody, whether it's a romantic comedy, whether it's whatever it is, they're all. But all of his movies are about art house movies, and one of the the amazing things I came across that I thought anyway was that Roger Ebert, um, evidently he was relatively close to to Woody Allen, and Allen saying that. Um, uh, you know, every day of his life, he's thought about committing suicide, you know, and it just, it blew me away. Um, and um, for somebody who's made me laugh for so long, I always tell people, if you think anything is funny and you don't know who said it, you know, it's, it's probably Oscar Wilde, Mark Twain, or Woody Allen. And, uh, <laughs> and here's this guy that's living with this, you know, this more than dark cloud over him. So um, anyway, that's, that's where I'm with him. Um, um, Annie Hall was another one to throw in there just because everybody thinks of that as, you know, classic either personality or romantic comedy. But when you get right down to it, I mean, it's it's pretty dark. I mean, lines like love fades, you know, and uh, for somebody who's been married three years and finally discovered that, you know what, I just can't live with anybody. You know, uh, I just, you know, I, I don't want to follow the the rubric of, of what you're supposed to be or how you're supposed to live. And, uh, um, you don't really love does fade. Trust me. <laughs> yeah. Well, I've, I've made a history of that. So I, I, every pair of jeans I own proves that, um, <laughs> the, uh, the, That's the, the deal with Annie Hall. I remember seeing that in, uh, like a $1 theater in, in Carmel, Indiana, when it came out. And I was, oh gosh, if it was uh, 77, I was 14 years old and uh, went into the movie and I was laughing out loud and, and like nobody else, there was very few other real super, I mean, obviously there's a few scenes in it where people were, were cracking up. Uh, and then Manhattan, which I think was his next film right after that, right. nobody was laughing but me. I mean, zero people. And I, I think it's highly appropriate to put Annie Hall in there because it strikes me as more of a French film about love and romance, you know, where, you know, yeah. things aren't always going to work out perfectly. And and when the two people break, it's a real break. Uh, yeah. and, and at the end of that film, he makes it real obvious that it really wasn't that much of, I mean, it, yeah, they, they left each other's lives, but he still had fondness for her and all this. I, I think it is the first comedy I ever saw, or sorry, romance story that I ever saw that was like that. And I don't know that there's been one since that's been so masterful of it's showing the ups and the downs and, you know, the scene where she leaves her body and, you know, what relationships kind of really are like. And it, you know. It gave us the line that, that cockroach the size of a Buick. Yeah, which, uh, yeah. I mean, uh, I mean, I just everything about it. I mean, it, to me, it's like a almost like a, a flawless film um, in terms of, um, and and I like the ending because um, I like. I think my favorite word is bittersweet. You know, because mm -hmm. I think that's what life is. I mean, I think there's a lot of good things that happen that aren't aren't the. And I, I put this in the book, of course, but. The best things in life aren't, you know, the graduations and the weddings and the, the what we would normally mark our life as. They're and we don't realize them at the time, but there's maybe that fleeting moment when you were hanging out with your friends somewhere, or you your dad took you to a baseball game, or you know whatever it might be. It's the little things, you know. And Annie Hall somehow just sort of captures that. And when they meet at the end, and they're still friends, and you you know that they they're gonna probably meet other times. Uh, you know, when you when you say love fades, it doesn't necessarily 
you don't have affection for the person, you don't want to not be with them. It's just, um, it's a very hard thing to sustain. And for people who, you know, um, fall in love with their, their high school sweetheart and they live 60 years and everything, that's great. I, I don't know how that works, but, you know, if it works, it's, it, well, I'm quoting Woody Allen again. Whatever works. If it works for you and you don't hurt other people, good. Yeah. Know, go for it. So well, We need the eggs. Yeah, actually, I, I did. I did that at my. Uh, I think I put. I don't remember now if I put it in the book or not. But I, I actually used that when you know uh, my first daughter got married. You know, and I said that line and everything. And appropriately enough, she got divorced a few years later. <laughs> so, um, yeah, we need the eggs. Yeah. So. Well, uh, being there, what what genre is that? Brand? I mean, it's a, such a hard film to define. Although there were films, you know, in the '30s and in the '40s where. Uh, you know, a, a guy off the street. I mean, you could go as far as uh, Mr. Deeds goes to town or something like that, where we're kind of the the uh, the unsophisticated yet morally you know centered person comes into the world of power and uh, manages to achieve just just by virtue of their character or whatever else. But uh, what what genre is that uh, breaking? Well, I think I think it's breaking um, kind of. I don't know if I even um, address it in the chapter, but in, in kind of rethinking and kind of, you know, I didn't really prep a whole lot for this, but I wanted to prep a little bit. Um, uh, <laughs> Me too. The idea that um, populism, you could just pluck somebody off the street, like, uh, you know, Kevin Klein and Dave or something like that, and just stick him in the White House, and everything's going to be hunky-dory. Um, this one, you, this person is... You know, he's just a simpleton, and he's seen as this, you know, um, wise individual. And how we've reached an age where we we take uh, things metaphorically when sometimes it's just meant very simplistically. Like when he says, "I don't, I don't read," you know, "Oh yeah, I don't read anymore either," and, and you know things like that. Um, and it it was a I don't know, it was a a picture of where we're at now, uh, a dumbing down, and a dumbing down that I thought, well, the, the book to me was partly a rediscovery of Hal Ashby, and when he, at the very end of the film, he comes up with the idea of putting the umbrella in the water when it looks like um, this is impl implying that this is this is our new uh, savior that's come down, and this is what we've been reduced to. I mean, it's to me, it's one of the most devastating um, questionings of religion in a mainstream movie that nobody seemed to get at the time. Um, so, um, for for me, that's what it is. You know, it's 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 really mocking that every man kind of thing, and uh, and going from that. Um, so that's where I would put it. Or you could just say. Most personality comedies uh, start with, we got Peter Sellers in it, but um, most of them start with, you know, personality comedies are based on uh, superiority. I mean, if Laurel and Hardy can get somehow through, soldier through, we're going to be able to get through that kind of thing. But this reduces our personality comedian to just, you know, an amoeba. And um, so I think that's what it's taking down. That's what it's doing with the dark comedy there. Um, so it reminds anyway. me sort of of uh, Forrest Gump. Just yeah, yeah. In, in that you know that uh, wise idiot kind of uh, feel. To yeah, it. and when when I first saw Forrest Gump, I mean you know won all these awards and people loved it and made a billion dollars and 
I was kind of offended by it because, um, like I said, I like all genres, and, you know, I like populism. And to me, it, it reduced populism to you had to be a special needs person to buy into all that stuff. And in the premise of populism, I don't want to believe that. I want to believe that, okay, you can change things and stuff like that. Um, I don't personally believe that, uh, but in the you know in the parameters of each particular genre um that's what we're doing and for that reason it bugged me you know along those particular lines but that also opened it up for being a dark comedy because it was just completely undercutting what you would normally uh, expect of a populist film well um, i i just didn't like it as a movie i mean i just it, it didn't do anything for me at the time and i remember thinking well this is this is zelig a little bit. Yeah, yeah. You yeah, know. we're just putting people, oh, let's play with this special technique where we can put, you know, Tom Hanks in this historic setting or this historic setting. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I agree. It was more almost um, marketed as a technological whiz than a, than a, than a regular storyline. Uh, so, um, yeah, I, I've always had trouble with, with that Forrest Gump. And uh, being there is just, I don't know. I just um, I like the minimalism of it and the idea that we've become a society where um, we're not reading, you know, and we're watching crap um, and we're not. I don't know. This time I'm I'm not a soapbox or something like that. But to me, to me, it's a it was a precursor to where we're at now. You know. Oh, big uh, time. I mean, uh, the 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 notion that uh, you know. Uh, Melvin Douglas or some big industrialist is really pulling all the strings behind the government and yeah. that uh, there are a few, you know, power makers, star makers, if you will, that can just, you know, with with uh, you curry their favor and you're in business and then uh, that someone completely unqualified can sort of, you know, lean on catchphrases and, you know, uh, simple, inarticulate utterances that sound better than logic, you know, makes them stand up to by scrutiny with, uh, gee, how could that ever happen? Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, luckily we don't have to worry about that. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm packing my car for Canada soon. Yeah, you know I mean we're in a bad situation. So. Yeah, and uh, uh, the, the 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 sort of manipulation. Now, did you? I'm 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 as much as I love this book, and I of course I read it cover to cover. Um, I, I immediately started thinking of other films that you may have considered, and uh, was wondering, you know, was Network on your list? Uh, was uh, I mean, I mean, it's it's maybe that's too yeah, I mean, too obvious. No, and I, I, I love I know authors love it when people go, "Why didn't you put this in your book?" Um, yeah. But uh, the 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 other sort of genre, uh, and maybe just because I saw one of these movies three days ago, uh, is the sports movie, and the seventies had you know Slapshot and North Dallas Forty, and would you consider the, either of those films a genre busting seventies film? Yeah, I would. I would because. You know, you automatically stick it in a, in a sports situation, and often sports movies are populist movies because underdog wins and things like that. But yeah, North Dallas Forty was you know really a cynical look at um, an area of football that we hadn't really um, considered that much. And now it seems like we've just been saying about being there. It seems even more timely now than uh, 
than it when it came out, or more obvious uh, than when it came out. And yeah, there were other ones. Um, I Clockwork Orange. I, I was most nervous about people hitting me with that, so that's why I, I commented on in the um, the epilogue of the book, right? Because um, it just I loved it, and it fit a lot of the things that I was I was going for. And this is an anti new wave French new wave because they wanted they didn't want adaptations. They wanted original stuff, and this is an adaptation. But, right. Um, um, most of the films I, I dealt with were adaptations because. I don't know. I thought it was a more nuanced kind of way to look at them, and you can't ever get it all in a in a, in a film. And it was fun to go back and look a little bit more closely at the original novel. And, and most of these books I hadn't read for years. And uh, the one that was most interesting to me in terms of rereading the book, and then my study of humor since then was was Little Big Man because it plays so much off of. Southwestern humor from the 19th century. I mean, right down to um, the character that keeps losing parts of his body. Right. Um, you know, I mean, it, it's in our literature. It's 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 right there. And the fact that of all the types of westerns there are, from you know sheriff pictures to outlaw pictures to you know the the railroads coming through town and all those kind of films, the most interesting and provocative one. Um, is the cavalry versus the Indians or the Native Americans, and we've change sides and it's, it's been the most resilient western and the most topsy-turvy one and so i had to have that one in there um though a lot of people you know you you see cowboys and indians well it's a western you know uh, so in some cases i just picked things that were um uh you know like all that jazz it's a musical you know what are you thinking about here but it's a fantasy film it's an art house film you know it's a dark comedy it's it um fossey does so many things with it and and that's why i ended up having the the two in there because in both cases i mean the traditional and i and i like traditional musicals but um um i always cringe to little people bit when people would burst into song and I like Fosse films in the fact that he placed them in a realistic setting and uh, um, but he the bottom line for his films was people have to go through their lives and we put blinders on to accomplish anything and I'm as bad as anybody worse probably and we let things happen and his subliminal message in Cabaret was we're in Vietnam now and and that's kind of how, you know, the the Nazis came to power. You know, we, we've been busy doing other things. And you could almost say the same thing now in a variation of that, you know. So um, uh, that's why I put that one in uh, two Fosse films in there. Because I think he he got he got what I was after and uh, and mixed up all these particular genres. Uh, the, the film musical... I mean, my, some of my favorites are Rocky Horror and Brigadoon and Everybody Loves Singing in the Rain. It seems like most of them, though, and I don't know why it is, the first, you know, half to maybe even two-thirds, you're loving it. Everything's going great. And they just take this left-hand turn, and the end of it is just like, wow, I, I, can't, I just can't handle another song about a guy singing about what he's doing right now. You know, I'm yeah. walking down the street and I'm feeling so good. And you say, okay, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I get it. You, you're singing again. Um, the, but back to uh, Little Big Man. 
little big man is, you know, because when you're a kid, you don't mind watching Westerns because there's guns and action and stuff. And you hate drama to a certain extent, you know, like a courtroom drama or a, a tense interpersonal drama because you're a kid. You don't, you know, that stuff's not interesting to you. You have no life experience. Little Big Man is, I can remember seeing it at the drive-in with my parents. Uh, Downhill Racer followed it, which I fell asleep for. But um, Little Big Man is like the first movie I ever saw that made me feel like an adult because I liked it. Because it, it had yeah. elements of humor and action, but it was a story about a guy. And I remember very shortly after that, I have the book and I enjoy rereading it because it's the movie... But it bring like, you know, obviously a lot of books. If you read the book behind it, you get so much more out of it. And right. when I got the book, I expected it to be a typical book. I expected it not to be a first. I, I mean, it's a thick book. <laughs> and yeah, it's all I, a first person account. It's, it's yeah, it, none yeah. of it is, you know, the, the sun shone brightly as Bill Johnson came out of the house. None of that. <laughs> it's, it, it's, he starts with the, the same first lines of the movie, if I'm not mistaken, uh, or it's the guy going to see him and then he, but his first quotes are all kind of what's in the movie. And, uh, you know, the, the, the story itself is just such a great story. But then you paint it against this backdrop of he really did understand the quote unquote the human beings, and uh, you you know you talk so well about the the Chief Dan George character that it being such a symbol for you know it's it's impossible to watch that film and it had to be even less possible at the time and not think about Vietnam. Oh, I know, and and I had um. um I, when I saw that film, it, it was the year after I'd I'd done my backpack through Europe thing when I was in college, and I had two friends I'd made in England visiting at the time, and we saw it at a drive-in too. Um, I mean, I'd I'd seen it in a theater, but I took them to it, and uh, you know, they were just um, they they were more appalled than anything else because they'd never seen such a blatant look at America as far as. And I said, hey, you know, the Holocaust was horrible, but this country was founded on Holocaust and then slavery. You know, so um, we can't point fingers too far in any one direction. And uh, I thought the the film played with that because he kept bouncing back and forth between civilized white people and then the human beings, you know, and that there weren't very many human beings. And I, I thought that was a great metaphor um, for the chief. Um, plus, plus he's just he's just charming you know when he when he goes to die and then it's like well some days it's right and some days it's not you know I mean, <laughs> yeah yeah um so it was it was well cast yeah extremely well cast uh you know uh what's her name uh the big female star of the time that has oh, to Faye watch dunaway. Faye dunaway yeah yeah, yeah. she uh yeah, that's, yeah. Uh, I mean, for a while she seemed to be in about everything I was I was watching. I mean, uh, from Bonnie and Clyde on, um, and you know, right through network and everything else, she was just everywhere for a while. But but yeah, the the um, the pedophilish bath for Dustin Hoffman, and you know, uh, it was just it was it was a her first total twist in terms of her image on on screen, and and I thought that was. Um, uh, one of the charms of the movie, just uh, upside, everything was just topsy turvy in the in the in the movie. But but again, I'd grown up on 
I was from an era when, you know, there were like 20 plus Westerns in prime time on TV and one out of every four American films was a Western. So, um, I had, my dad had taken me to all these Westerns and stuff. And so it gave me, it gave me just a different slant on this is the way it really was. It wasn't, you know, charming and wonderful. It was, you know, dog eat dog. Um, and since I was so intimately anti-Vietnam, it was fun to play with a Custer character, a general Custer character in the film. Uh, so, um, yeah, they were all fun to write each of the chapters. And kids today, I mean, because when I was a kid, you played Cowboys and Indians. Oh, yeah. That yeah, was I did a, too. It was an actual game, that, and I doubt that's done. I mean, I, I haven't seen a kid get the little cowboy outfit in a long time, and I'm sure kids today aren't uh, out, you know, playing Cowboys and Indians. I hope they're not anyway. I, I, yeah, I, I mean, it's like, it's like – um, uh, oh God! I just did a piece on, um, you know, the 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 new offshoot of Star Wars, you know, and which is basically Star Wars is drawn from the Western, the Searchers, but it's it's homogenized now because, I mean, believe it or not, if when you when you follow the chronology of all of the characters in Star Wars and everything else. Um, Darth Vader is essentially based on John Wayne's character yeah. um, in The Searchers. And it's, I mean, right down to John Wayne's scalps, you know, uh, scar in that film. And in, and in the Star Wars episode, we behead the, the person. And why I say homogenized, it's okay to kill the sand people, you know, or it's okay to um, want to have a bad guy like uh, Darth Vader. Um, we don't offend anybody, you know, because these are just imaginary things. Uh, like I tell my students, Star Wars, yeah, they're fun, but it's not science fiction. It's it's fantasy, and we can just, you know, blow it off, whereas The Searchers was was pretty dramatic stuff, you know, coming uh, yeah. after the the Supreme Court ruling about uh, segregating, desegregating schools and everything like that. And, and Ford really took a hard look at racism in America via the Native Americans instead of uh, African Americans. Now, love and death. Let, let's let's talk about that. I wish we could talk about all of these films because uh, they're they're all really films that I like a lot. There's not one in the bunch that uh, not that that would make the book any less better. Just a happy coincidence for me. Um, but love and death is is so full of jokes. Uh, yet it's still a dark film. I mean, there's he's he's gonna you know, he has to go to the front. He's gonna be killed in a duel. He's you know it's this 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 incredible you know uh, funny look, and how hard it was to be alive then. And even at the end, he's actually dead as as he's talking. God screwed him, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and what 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 really gets me is I was a lit major for a while and. I probably overdid it in the chapter, but it is just peppered with, um, I mean, you don't, I think I, like I tell my students, a, a good parody should be funny, even if you're not really on top of what it's spoofing. But the more you know about the things that are being spoofed in it, the funnier it is. So if you know anything about Russian literature mm -hmm. or early Russian cinema, right. I mean, you're just on the floor besides all the other Woody Allen stuff in it. I mean, it's just amazing. Uh, um, I was just surprised he didn't have any Gogol stuff in it because I really think his his uh, mindset and what he does is, is more like a Gogol short story than, than, uh, than some of the other 
uh, real heavyweights. Gogol somehow gets, uh, I don't know, lost in the literary uh, mob of uh, Russian uh, 19th century authors. But Well, it's interesting also to, to see the progression of Woody Allen from Love and Death and then just two years later, Annie Hall, which to me one of the most interesting things about Annie Hall is how he is absolutely unafraid to break the conventions of film. Whether they've been used before or not, who cares? But he has a cartoon sequence in the film. Uh, oh, he I know, he I know. breaks the third wall constantly. You know, the scene with Marshall McLuhan alone is yeah. is just, oh, my God, is he really doing this? Uh, because it's such a personal story, and you expect it to follow sort of a, a Woody Allen narrative where you see him in all these kooky situations reacting, you know, to the absurdity of the world. And, you know, at every every uh opportunity he completely breaks that yeah yeah and you picked a, a great scene because it, he ends it by saying wouldn't it be great if life was like that um or having been married three times you know how many arguments have you had and the other person said something and then they denied it and they denied it and i love the scene where he replays Diane Keaton saying something that you know she claims she didn't say, and we've just you heard it, and he turns to the audience and says, "You heard it too, right?" You know, and he goes on with it, and uh, yeah, he just he does everything in that film, um, and it's it's so meticulous in terms of like when when they're walking through her past the year before the 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 date, and she has the astronaut haircut and everything like that, and I always tell my students, you don't really know a film until you can watch it. And don't even look at the characters. You just look at the full frame and what's going on. I had watched that several times before I realized that the movie they were going to in the background said The Misfits. It was the Gable Monroe film, yeah, uh, yeah. the John Huston film. And, you know, the detail he puts into all of that stuff, or any good filmmaker does, you, you, you have to look for all these little clues, you know. And I always tell my students, if there's, if there's ever a reference to a movie or if there's a film clip or a TV show on, they didn't just randomly put that in. That means something, you know. Figure it out, you right, know. Right. And uh, um, and all of his stuff was darkly comic. But um, I just think he, Bob Hope would have done the same kind of stuff if he would have been living now in a in a more modern age. He just couldn't do a lot of that stuff, you know. So the the scene where he um, is walking down the street and stops the start stopping the couples and asking them what makes their relationship work and one couple is i'm really shallow and have nothing to say and <laughs> exactly the same way and then the the couple with the large vibrating egg uh yeah, it's yeah. it's just that 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 messing with reality thing that he does in that movie just all over the place uh, yeah yeah and the, and the one little old lady that just says love fades and she really nails it <laughs> Well, and, then, and he could, he could, and that's the only one he could. Oh, yeah, that, oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah. Well, the scene um, when he's eating with the family, and they're all yeah, talking yeah, about swamp yeah. meats and stuff, and he cuts back to himself, and he's wearing a complete Hasidic Jew outfit. Yeah. You know, as he's yeah. handing the food out and stuff. He just he he didn't he he really took the conventions and and made that thing. It's it's uh it's it's such a unique film even to this day. Um, now there was a, a film or two that also struck me as, and I don't know if it, if they're, see, I, I, I started kind of thinking what movies are like these. And then I started looking at them and go, well, that maybe didn't even break a, jo a genre. And as usual, it's based on movies I've seen recently. Um, and one of them is, is Injustice for All, 
which to me is is a dark comedy. It's it's the absurdity yeah, yeah. and it's it's taking the lawyer picture and putting on on Sear a little bit. Um, and then uh, and then this is a film I just want to ask you about because it might belong in this category, but I don't know what what genre it belongs in, or if it's breaking one. It's just a film that I really love, and that is uh, Save the Tiger with uh, Jack Lemmon. God, that's a really, really good question. Um, I think, yeah, I think you you could you could um, you could put it in here. I mean, it um, you don't normal. I don't normally that doesn't jump off the page as a dark comedy for me, but it is a dark comedy, and that's kind of what I was trying to do with this book. Was, in, I mean, in some cases you could say, well, you know, Harold and Maude, we kind of really think of as a dark comedy, even though you're, it's breaking these other conventions. But I, I, I really tried to pick films that your first knee-jerk response would be in another area. And I think Save the Tiger would be the same thing. You wouldn't necessarily think dark comedy with that. So, yeah, I think that would have been a, a candidate for the, for the book, too. The, uh, the 70s, to me, had more char- really interesting character studies than any other decade. I mean, you know, there have been some since, but but movies like Save the Tiger, or yeah. uh, there's a t- kind of a terrible uh, Charlton Heston movie where he plays a quarterback. It's called Number One, but it, it's nothing but a few days in his life, and there's no right. big message at the ending. There's no solution to the problem. There's no well. Here's what he'll do next. There's no you know epilogue that says you know like at the end of unforgiven there's nothing like that uh do do we have those kind of movies anymore are they just so uncommercially sound that that nobody's going to make them anymore you have to really um look for them i i um i live in Muncie, but I spent a whole lot of time down at the art cinema in Indianapolis. And yeah, there, there are those films, but they do not get huge play. And most people, you know, are out at the mall, uh, with a superhero. Um, so they're, they're still there, but you got to really kind of look for them. Um, as far as, uh, you know, of this particular quality, but there's something you said, before that, I just want to return to it just briefly. The 70s are considered like the, the last kind of like renaissance period in American cinema. And it's because they're caught between the 50s and 60s, which were these overblown movies, huge spectacle kind of things. Initially, the fight TV, and then they just kind of got in, in that kind of rut. And then there were a few huge budget films in the 60s, which confused people like... Um, the Sound of Music was just an aberration, you know. It was a huge success, but then they started to do try to do some other ones, like you know, uh, Star or a number of them just really lost a lot of money and did it, uh, went that way. And then the '70s, we've got these, like you were saying, these kind of like character studies, these slice of life, these kinds of American New Wave type films. And then once we slide into the 80s we're starting to do that big budget kind of thing again except now we're it's outer space it's fantasy it's superheroes disaster movies yeah yeah we've gone back to that same kind of parameter and it's and you know people are going to it again for different reasons not because there's you know tv can't do it but now we have these big you know uh 
uh, all special effect, uh, what do I want to say, uh, special theaters that can, you know, you're not even going to see the movie. You just want to see kind of uh, the spectacle of this huge thing on a huge screen with, you know, Dolby sound and all this kind of stuff. So the 70s are kind of a little oasis between these two giants uh, of uh, kind of white elephants. Um, in fact, there's a Manny Farber did a, a really, really good essay um, called, what is it, kind of white elephant uh, art versus, uh, I want to say, termite art. And, he, and he's basically saying the same thing, that the best movies are the little movies that just have a little slice of life in them and you go to them because you really want to kind of see another perspective on how somebody else is trying to get through what you're trying to get through as opposed to, you know, Cleopatra or something like that. So, well, in, in the seventies, they also, from a production standpoint, there was a, the ability to not have to have a huge budget. You saw movies that had only yeah, a few yeah. characters in them and, and save the tiger to me is a great example of that because it's, you know, that did not require a huge budget other than paying for Jack Nicholson. I mean, sorry, Jack Lemon, but right. uh, but, yeah. but it's a it's a kind of a small movie. Yeah. And yeah. there there were a lot of of really great character studies like that. that and I love movies like that, that, that just kind of show you the, the behind the scenes, you know, behind the curtain, the, the, the you know, sort of the, the seamy underbelly of the guy who you wouldn't think had one. Uh, and, and, uh, it, it, it just, I just don't see films like that anymore. I saw a movie just this week that I had never seen before. It was probably made in, in 2005 and, uh, it was called sweet land. And it was about a, uh, you know, an 80 year old woman kind of telling the story of when she came over from Germany in the twenties to Minnesota after the war and, you know, uh, was a mail order bride in this little farming community and it was brilliant it was absolutely brilliant never heard a thing about it and i think we had that spike of independent films in the 90s the mid 90s that helped us you know with pulp fiction hit and reservoir dogs and all that that there's still that industry there's still those small films out there but you really have to look hard for them oh i know that there was just um this was on demand. It, it, it's a new film, but it, it just went straight to you know cable. Uh, but it's a it's a Japanese film called The Daughter, and it's it's just about a really crappy father who you, who you never see. But he's had three daughters and abandoned them, and then he went elsewhere and had a daughter there, and he's died now. And one of the daughters goes, and they basically instead of these three daughters being real opposed and hateful towards this other daughter because their father took their father away, they kind of bring her in uh, to their kind of group home, you might say. And they're all the ages range probably from mid to late teens to late 20s or something like that. And nothing happens. It's just about them dealing with what's happened to all of them. And it's not morose or anything. At times it's sad, but at times they just... You know, it's a slice of life. There's no particular storyline there. There's no car chases, you know. Nothing blows up. Um, but it's it's a real film. It's moving, and um, you just you go out of it, and you feel like you've seen something, you know. And when you, if, if I go out of a movie, and I can't sit down with somebody and have a beer and talk for a while and say, what was your signature scene in the film? Or, what, you know, what was, what was the key there? Then, 
you know, it, it wasn't really a movie. It was like two hours of my life I'm never getting back, you know, that kind of thing. So, You know, I um, know that for economic reasons this will never happen, but I've always thought that at the end of a film there ought to be, you know, a, a moderator or someone come out for the people that want to talk about it right afterwards, you know, because a lot of people see yeah. movies by themselves. And now we've got these, and I have to admit, I'm addicted to these places that'll serve you a pizza and stuff while you're watching the movie. I, I The Art House Cinema does that. You can make, you have a mixed drink in there and you can get a sandwich. And Yeah, they got, well, now they got wings. They've got everything. It's a real, <laughs> it's, it's, it's probably making them more than the, the screenings are at this point. But yeah, uh, I always, I've always thought, shouldn't there be at least a half an hour that that people can stand up and ask questions of some, you know, expert there at the oh. at the cinema? West Gehring, in fact, you 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 could be, you know, get some side money by conducting a little <laughs> film seminar after these. Well, maybe not me, but I, no, I agree completely. <laughs> when I when I was in at uh, University of Iowa. Um, Robert Altman came in, and we saw a rough cut of um, one of his earliest films. And who, who else? Uh, we Scorsese came in, and he showed a rough cut of well, Mean Streets, you know. Wow. And then we had, you know, and he both Altman and, and Scorsese at that time were nobody. I mean, nobody had heard of him outside of like you know. Uh, a PhD film program, you know, right. at, at some university, and we just sat down, and we asked questions, and da, 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 and it, it was it was wonderful. And I'm, you know, I'm still that way. And every the, the only thing that keeps me in teaching, I've been teaching for like eight thousand years, and you have like three or four students, kind of like you and Tom Chester, um, that are really into film. And I, a lot of my classes, when they end, if I don't have something after another class or something like that, somebody or some several somebodies will they'll just we'll talk about the film or we'll talk about whatever the genre of the week is or or whatever so we do it i do it i it's very fulfilling in my classes but you're right it'd be a great um addition to a, a screening experience if if we could stop the the film it's sort of like when you go to new york and you go to um oh what do they call them um they're plays um, that haven't officially opened, but they'll stop in the middle of the play and talk about what they were trying to do and, uh, you know, where they're going with this and how I see the character. And then sometimes they let the audience jump in and otherwise they just talk among themselves. And it's, it's fascinating to, to do that. Uh, so they actually do it on Broadway occasionally. Um, if, you, if you see something in, a, in preview, that's what they call it. If you yeah. see a movie in preview. I really, as a lifelong bachelor that dates lots of girls, I used to uh, think that a movie was the best first date. Uh, I don't think that anymore, and that's for two reasons. Number one, you don't really get to talk. Um, and number two, I found that it was too much of a crucible for me. I was like, okay, so we're going we're gonna to get, we're going to watch the movie, and then we're going to go out and have coffee or get something to eat. And if they don't have good opinions about the movie, then I would quit seeing them. And, yeah, and yeah. That, that maybe that's a good test or maybe it's a bad test, but now, now it's just the, the food. Oh, um, no, no, I know exactly what you mean. Um, my, my third wife, we're still, we're still friends, and we can, we can go to a movie and 
have these great discussions after. And the key thing we always start with is a, is a signature scene. But I know um, when we first started, we did a, we did the date thing, but you know how I'm into Chaplin and a few other things. Oh, yeah. And that's, that's a really scary scenario when you get in a relationship, when you have these sacred movies, and you, you don't want to show them to the person almost because if they don't like them, yeah. I, I've actually made jokes in my classes, you know, uh, you know, saying, you know, they didn't like City Lights, so I divorced them, and, you know, uh, <laughs> it might not have happened that way, but that's the way I choose to remember it, you know, and, uh, but it's almost like that, you you can't like that film, well, then, you know, what's the point, you know, we might as well end it here, you know. Um, I, so. I broke up with the girl, now, I didn't, I didn't tell her this, and I didn't, you know, make a big deal out of it at the time, but she didn't get the big Lebowski. And I'm like, there is no future here. I'm sorry. There's just absolutely no future here. Um, yeah. Now, this book is amazing. I really, really enjoyed it. Uh, you know, hat tip to the great Dave Smith, too, for the foreword. Um, what, when you sit down, you've written 30, is it 35 now, or is it still at 34? Um, I just had one come out last month. Oh, <laughs> it, wow. It's called Movie Comedians of the 50s, uh, Defining a New Era of Big Screen Comedy. So I like the titles of your, your books because you didn't call this one Black Laughter or some <laughs> jazzy, you know, uh, trendy thing. When you, at this point in your uh, writing career, when you sit down to write one of these, what excites you now? I mean, you've covered all the topics. You've done the, the, the genre examination you know, you've done yeah, so much. Yeah. You've even written a, I mean, your James Dean book was incredible. Uh, the, 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 the Red Skelton book was incredible. What, what gets you excited and what draws you to your next title? Well, I could, I, anymore, I just try to go somewhere that I'm, I'm really going to enjoy, but I don't think it, it's been done and I get excited about it. Like, Right now, we don't need another book on Buster Keaton per se, but um, and he, since he's reached a parody sort of with Chaplin, as much as I hate to say that, but he really speaks to us more than Chaplin. I mean, Chaplin speaks to the heart, and Keaton is more existentialistic. You know, uh, my one of the best endings of a Keaton film is is College. He gets the girl, and it. You should end there. Happy ending. Uh, like it should be Harold Lloyd. Da -da, the end. Right. But then there's a dissolve to this angry couple with millions of kids around them, and then there's a dis another dissolve, and there's this old couple who are probably haven't spoken in 50 years, and then there's another dissolve to a cemetery with plots next to each other. I mean, he's he's wonderful. I mean, he really speaks to the the dark slant. And in the in the 20s, obviously. He was a great comedian, but he was way behind Harold Lloyd and, and uh, Chaplin in terms of popularity. And so the book I'm writing right now is, I was curious to, I mean, I have to put it in the parameters of, you know, what he's important now and what we think of him and things like that. You have to have that framework. But what I'm doing largely now is 
writing a book on Buster Keaton as if um, he did, he did twelve features that are really twelve silent great features between 1923 and 1929. I'm writing the book as if it was like maybe written in 1932. I'm just trying to deal as much as possible with reviews and sources and stuff from the 20s, and it's just remarkable this this stuff I'm finding, you know, in terms of. Uh, you know, what people think of a certain movie and how it was perceived at that time. And, um, you know, like the general is considered, you know, his greatest film and everybody knows it bombed. But when you, when you dig into it, some of the reasons that they say, like, you know, people, you know, they, Buster Keaton makes a joke. There's a scene near the end uh, where he throws out his saber and the saber, the sharp part comes off and shish kebabs another soldier and kills him, you know. And in the, this one review, and he's, he's one of the better critics in the 20s, he says, you know, he kills him, you know. That's not funny. But yes, it is. That's precisely <laughs> why it's funny, you know. Um, so that's what gets me. Um, uh, a book that I think I would I would like to read, or one that I haven't seen, or a new perspective on uh, on stuff that's really good. Because, like I said, we don't need another biography of him. But I hadn't I'm not aware of any book on Keaton where they they've just largely completely focused on reviews and critiques of him and other comedians in the 20s. Well, and is is Harold Lloyd kind of a forgotten man? I mean. I know that you know about him. I know about him. People that are in, you know, film scholarly, you know, areas know all about Harold Lloyd. But popularly, uh, I think his films stand up relatively well. But I mentioned Harold Lloyd's name to some people, and they just look at me with a blank stare in the face. If you mention Chaplin or Keaton, they at least have a, a knowledge of who they are. Yeah, he with with Harold Lloyd, um, he was the most popular comedian in the 20s in terms of Chaplin was just making a film every three or four years by then. And the way I tell people, you know, when they ask me what I'm doing and everything like that, Chaplin was God. Um, when you read the Harold Lloyd reviews, and again, in it's almost like I'm researching several books now because I've actually got two new topics I'm going to go with because you just find all this stuff. But all of the Harold Lloyd films, I swear to God, all the Harold Lloyd films, when you look at the reviews from the 1920s, the critic will say something like, I don't know why I'm reviewing this. This, you know, his, all of his stuff is just great. You know, it's just wonderful, you know. And then with, with Buster Keaton, it's kind of like a roller coaster. You know, the, it's good, but it's, you know, there's, there's a little problem here, but, you know, it's worth seeing. Go see it, but, you know, it's not whatever. And Harold Lloyd was so tied to that go-getter, um, boy next door, everything works out okay, and then sound and the depression hit. And that's what really, really killed him. And he doesn't stand up as well in, in terms of um, the, what do I want to say, the, the brilliance of, of um, the poignancy and brilliancy of Chaplin. Right. And he doesn't, he doesn't touch like the existential angst of uh, Brecht or something that Keaton does. And that's why he's not. And then he did another thing. He did a thing like Red Skelton. Um, he got ticked at, um, you know, some comments made about his films. And he didn't, some people didn't think they were going to hold up and anything. So he sat on them just like, just like uh, Red Skelton sat on his TV shows. And they weren't available at all right. for like 40 years. And that kills your legacy. I mean, that yeah. more than anything else. So I think he, I still don't think he's, you know, in a, in a class quite with, even though, you know, James Agee put, 
even put Langdon in there. Langdon is right. fascinating, but I don't know if he merits the top four. But um, Lloyd is just not on a par with, with Chaplin and Keaton, but, but he deserves more attention, and I think part of it was just he kind of erased himself yeah. by um, by that. And plus his character was so tied to a period that when it was over, you know, you can't be a go-getter in the Depression. Everybody still wanted to work, but right. there wasn't any work, you know. Right, and then everyone was literally hanging off of the clock hands above the, above yeah, the street. Yeah. And he had the one great big comeback film uh, that that I think is is a, a favorite of mine. But I would I would have to agree the 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 depth of uh, of uh, you know intellectual discovery in those films is certainly not as great as. Uh, as a Keaton or Chaplin. Um, so the, the book that just came out last month, movie comedians of the fifties, uh, who's in it. And, uh, you know, what's, what's your favorite thing about writing that book? Well, what I wanted to deal with, with this one was the fact that, um, um, it was such a, I mean, every, every decade, obviously there is a transition in comedy and, and things that are going on, but, I would argue that this decade, at the 50s, probably had more crap hit the fan than just about any other period in terms of you, you, throw in, you throw in television, and then you throw in McCarthyism, and then you throw in the fact that um, personality comedians were disappearing. You weren't just a personality comedian now. You didn't just do comedy. I mean, there, I mean, there are exceptions, but generally speaking, nobody in the 50s were... You know, that was all they did, you know, and they, they didn't necessarily have, I mean, we have aberrations even now. We have Pee Wee Herman or somebody like that who has a costume and everything like that. There will always be stuff like that. But it, you know, you had Jack Lemmon and great comedian, but I mean, he, he two of his three Oscars are essentially for, for dramatic parts. Right. Um, or the days in wine, of wine and roses is yeah, not a laugh fest. Of, yeah, I was going to say one of his two is for for a dramatic thing. He was nominated lots of times, but anyway, um, um, so I, I deal with Judy Holiday. I deal with Martin and Lewis, uh, Bob Hope, Chaplin, uh, Skelton, Jack Lemmon, and uh, Danny Kaye, uh, Tony Randall, and then uh, I've been lucky in that both in the seventies book and in the um, the fifties book. The key film that seems to wrap it all up is actually at the end of the decade. It's like I, you know, like the gods of comedy bless me, but I end it with some like it hot. And um, so I'm, I'm just showing how um, all of these things impacted this stuff and how there was kind of a dumbing down in the 50s because of McCarthyism and how um, certain things you know, and, and because of TV, if we did have any kind of satire, they had to get it out of politics and they had to direct it towards television. You know, that was that was the key. And um, I, I initially had an Abbott and Costello in in, in the selection, and I, I do in my 40s book on comedians. But when I kind of when I pick my films, like I kind of review them several times, and they didn't quite make the cut. I think if I had been doing 50s TV comedians that they, they would have done it because they, they had kind of like two phases i mean in the you know in the in the 40s they were doing their um their wonderful verbal slapstick who's on first kind of stuff and then in the late 40s and then into the 50s 
they were Universal was sticking them in all of the you know Universal had all the horror characters. So it was Universal, you know, it was Abbott Costello meet Frankenstein and things like that. And Universal just didn't spend the money to make them be as 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 good as they could have been. At least the ones that were in the fifties. But um, um, I had a lot of fun with this because um, I thought Jerry Lewis was was overrated. And so what I do is there's two chapters on on Martin and Lewis. And what I do is, the first one I treat them as a as a typical team, which they were. They were like Hope and Crosby. Sure. And then and then late, um, I do artists and models, and um, I treat it as I I treat it as a solo Jerry Lewis film, even though um, it's still technically a Martin and Lewis film. But the thing that I I um, I found fascinating and I had the most fun with was the idea of. Um, utilizing um, a different type of Lewis. I mean, he became sort of more of a cartoon character yeah. in, that, in, in that particular era. And part of that is driven by the fact that, you know, he was working with, with um, several different people, but um, I'm going to blank here on my, on my character name here. Um, uh, oh, God, let me, let me get this here. Um, Frank Tashlin. Um, yeah, I was just I about to say, yeah, the girl can't and nobody help it. remembers Tashlin. And, he was a cartoon uh, director, if I'm not yeah, mistaken. Yeah, yeah. And um, he maybe helped the dumbing down of it, but he he did change. He brought some really interesting things into into the 50s, and that that was the plus. And he was a huge influence on Jerry Lewis. And so in, in Artists and Models, you know, film where Jerry Lewis gets wrapped around people and it, it, it's it's very much a cartoon type film and they work together on a number of films together or he heavily influenced some other films and 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 Lewis will will admit that that you know this was his kind of breakthrough or whatever you'll have but um I even I and again if I had a discovery in this particular film it was uh, this particular book was the fact that um, Tashlin wrote like three or four children's stories, and they completely—it's—it's it's like the Rosetta Stone of figuring out his movies a little better, because they just pretty much trash humanity, and uh, they—but they do it in an interest, interesting way. And I—I I even got permission to reproduce a still or two from one of his children's books in it. They—they uh, they kind of explain like. Um, he just saw the world in a different perspective, but he was like Preston Sturges in the 40s. He just had a small window for about a decade, and then he lost the pulse of the public, and we don't remember him that much anymore. But, I mean, during the 50s, he worked with, during the 40s and 50s, he worked with a lot of people, often uncredited. I mean, everyone from Bob Hope to uh, the Marx Brothers to Red Skelton, he just doesn't always pop up in the credits until he worked with Hope on a, on a film or two, and then with, with Martin and Lewis. But um, that was the fun of the film, watching it evolve from, you know, McCarthyism and then the dumbing down and then fight against TV and then um, just personality comedians aren't the type of personality comedians they were anymore. They they do dramatic parts and they do other things. So I'm rambling here. Sorry. No, no, that's okay. Uh, you, you ramble well. Um, <laughs> genre busting dark comedies of the 1970s and movie comedians of the 1950s. Where can people get these fine works? I'm assuming somewhere online. <laughs> yeah, I mean just just plug in um, 
go online and plug in my name and McFarland, and it'll pop up all over. Um, uh, so they're out there. Um, there are, so there are, the are well, no, there are link. There'll be links in the the posting yeah, on yeah. my website. I'll post, and people can directly um, get them there. Uh, Doctor Wes Gehring of Ball State University, known to me, and you mentioned Tom Chester earlier as the film god. And again, do you, do you still have all of your books from your library or did you eventually, I mean, I know you haven't succumbed totally to digital and, uh, uh, one of the questions I want no, to, I, I still, I mean, the last count, it's a, something like seven or 8,000 now. Oh, I think my God. condo is going to collapse. We just um, drool looking at you. We just walking down the, the, the stacks and just looking at them, just drooling. Um, now I should probably ask you this before we go. Because I'm dying to know this, uh, having done a little research for you as a as a youngster, um, is it easier now to research these things because of the digital world, or is it harder, or is it just the same as it always was? Because you're looking at things that are on microfilm and microfiche and all that. Anyway, um, I would say it's a little bit easier, but a lot of places you literally have to go there that they won't lend. Um, some places, I mean, on the West Coast, they seem to, they'll send you lots of stuff. East Coast, you almost have to go there, which is fine. I love New York, so every year I go for a week or two and do a lot of research there. Uh, so I would say digital really helps. But what I find with my students, um, um, they don't really, I mean, I'm not anti-computers or anti-digital or anything like that, but they feel like they can research totally from their computer. And um, I always tell them it's good to Google something or get, you know, titles or whatever like that, but you can't trust any particular site because if you do, I mean, I've found lots of books that have been helpful online and things like that, but quotes or authors or titles, they're invariably wrong or there's a miscue someplace. And you need to literally get, you know, hard copy. (laughs) And, and go from there. And I'm finding just a lot of students don't know how to do um, basic research. Um, so it's a mix of the two. And it, it eases up a lot of things. Like, I'll give you an example. I, um, this Keaton book that I'm working on right now, um, in one of, I'm a big baseball fan. And in one of my baseball books, there was a reference to Keaton. I mean, I knew Keaton was a big baseball fan, but there was a reference to him having uh, telegraphed um, Babe Ruth once or twice. Uh, when Babe Ruth went into vaudeville when he was, you know, really big in the 20s and stuff. And um, I thought, whoa, you know, so I knew it wasn't going to be a whole lot. It wouldn't be worth the trip. But I got in contact with the Baseball Hall of Fame, and it took them like four months or something. But I got literally, you know, they sent me uh, a digitalized telegram that, that – um, that uh, Buster Keaton had written to Babe Ruth and something like that. So things along those lines, yeah, it helps out a lot. Um, it just depends on, on what the subject is and, and how obscure the character. I did this book on Will Cuppy a few years ago, which nobody remembers him. It was a satirist back in the Benchley era, um, kind of a cross between Benchley and Groucho Marx. And uh, that one... I. 
I had to go certain places and just get stuff because it just wasn't available. He wasn't well known enough. So it just it, part of it just depends on your topic and who you're who you're dealing with. But um, I, I so would, yeah, I would say you know the book that I I researched was about the Marx Brothers, and uh, just having to go to the Reader's Guide period, periodical literature, write down all of the various titles, then go into the stacks which at Ball State, I'm, I'm sure they haven't thrown them away. You know, you went and you looked at Time Magazine from 1937 or whatever it was, just going through the actual publication to find the article and then even seeing ads next to the article because that yeah, was back yeah. in the days when, when uh, you know, the articles weren't contiguous in other words now they the, in most magazines an article remains unto itself until it's finished and then a new article begins this was back in the day and i know you remember this when in newspapers and in in uh magazines see page 64 you go to page 64 read one column see page 89 you go to page 89 and there's a couple columns just going through and seeing the other articles and the actual print that it was in and the ads that were around it, you know, it, 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 you get more than just what's available online that's been digitally reproduced or rekeyed in or an optical character reader has gone through. And certainly all of the major large publications have already gone through and retranscribed everything so you can find it in a digital format. But I think there's something about actually uh, the... Um, Phil Marlowe character, uh, the 50th anniversary of the Phil Marlowe character, this wonderful anthology put together where they got a, an individual detective fiction writer to write a story for every year using that character. And the guy who put it together tells the story of going to research the Chandler actual manuscripts of everything that he wrote. And he tells the story of expecting it to be on, you know, almost butcher paper and black typewriter. And no, it was on yellow, very beautiful yellow paper. And, and those of us who can remember pre-electric typewriters, there were three little, you know, color ribbons that you could use. You could use black, yeah. you could use red, or you could use blue. And these were done in blue. So they were these beautiful pastel pages of nothing but, you know, hard-bitten detective jargon. And, and there's something about that. There's something about seeing the actual materials or at least trying to find them in their original state that gives them context. I don't know. You know, I agree, com I agree completely. And, and that's, that's actually where I get a lot of ideas from my next book because you're you read this review on such and such or this article, and then on the next page, there's something that's possibly pertinent to what you're writing, but at the same time, it's like, damn, that would be a good piece if I could, you know, go from there. So, yeah, you lose the context when you just, you know, you order something, such and such an article, and, the, and you get it electronically, and that's great, and it saves you a trip to Miami or something like that. But you lose what you just described. You lose going through and that textile kind of thing and uh, seeing the, you know, oh, the ads for travel, you know, the 20th Century Express from New York to L.A. or, or things like that. You, you just get in the, in the period better. You, you, you understand it more. And like when I did that book on, uh, on the Chaplin War Trilogy, 
on and, and did three types of dark comedies that he did. Um, when I went back through all these old newspapers, it was just amazing because, you know, they were painting the Kaiser in these horrific ways. I mean, Chaplin was very, um, not that way. I mean, but at the same time, you'd seen them painting the Kaiser as just, you know, babies on bayonets and stuff like that. And then the two pages over, because he did a Bond tour in the South after the Bond tour with Mary Pickford and Douglas Fairbanks in D.C. and and New York. Um, he went through the South. So you'd see these overly dramatic, horrible things about these awful Germans in World War One, And on the flip side, you'd see the Ku Klux Klan had just hung somebody, you know, right. and then chopped them up and things like that. And it's like, oh, my God, all of this you know, this stuff is going on simultaneously, and it just, it puts you in the period, and that's, you just, you just don't get that, if you just, um, you know, just request an email, I mean, uh, you request online an article and such and such, and, and thank God you get it, but you don't get any of that other stuff, so well, I agree with you. I, I won't get into, I mean, I've always been a big exploitation guy, and so, you know, a lot of the movies I wanted to see were simply not available. You couldn't go to a theater and see them, not even a, a revival of the Herschel Gordon Lewis, you know, blood feast collection or, or uh, 10,000 or 2000 maniacs. Uh, you couldn't see a lot of the John Waters films they, they weren't at your video store. And yeah. so you would have to search and search. And there was a little place in Broad Ripple in a guy's garage where you could see, you know, if you waited for three months, you could get a, a copy of uh, Desperate People or something like that. And there is something to the accessibility of all this stuff where if a kid wanted to, he could see every Herschel Gordon Lewis movie in one weekend. And, right, and it's right. there's there's something about having to search out this material and really badly want to see it as opposed to just sort of pleasantly scanning over uh, what, whatever is there. I, I think that that's not, not great. I, I don't know why. And I know it's, Hey, you kids get off my lawn to a certain extent. And I don't, <laughs> I don't mind that. I don't mind it that it's easier for them. What I mind is the, uh, I have this thing I say all the time to younger people in the industry I work in, which is information is not knowledge and knowledge is not wisdom. And it, it has to do with that. It has to do with, well, yes, you may have seen it, but I don't know that you've experienced it because those movies were made for a certain purpose at a certain time. They weren't about Netflix. They were about we don't have any money and we have to get people to come in because we're just trying to make some money on a film production. And right. so it, for that reason has to be so over the top that it's not going to be here for a long time. You're not always going to be able to see this movie. There's going to be another incredibly bad movie. That's trying <laughs> to do the same thing in a week. And, uh, I don't know. Okay. I digress, but, uh, no, no, I, no, I'm I'm on the same page as you are with this. Um, so, um, I'm you know I'm glad to hear that from a younger man here. Yeah, well, <laughs> and I'm not that much younger. One of my favorite stories of Wes Gehring is the very first time I met Doctor Wes Gehring, 
and that was uh, a friend had encouraged me to take one of your classes and I was all into that because you could they were higher level courses and they didn't have prerequisites so once you got past like broadcasting 101 or whatever it was at Ball State or 102 there was a couple of classes you had to take and then you could take anything so yeah, I, it, yeah. was, it was it uh, was it was uh, on probably the genres it was genres yeah and uh, so we're we're in the classroom, and you're running late, and it's you know how that you know you know how that thing is that it's like uh, I don't know if they still have this on university campuses, but it's uh, well if they're an, an instructor you only have to wait ten minutes, but if they're a professor you have to wait fifteen, and if they're the and so we're all sitting there and that talk is going on, and I'm like I could care less. I'm like hey, I paid for this. I'm I'm gonna sit here, and. Um, you came in, you apologized. You were only, you know, five minutes late or something. And you said, uh, I think you mentioned that, that you had been in with, uh, Dr. Alexander or something like that and, and yeah, couldn't get away. Yeah. And, uh, so, uh, who was, I think the acting department chairman at the time yeah, or something. Yeah. We just got rid of the antichrist. Yeah. Tomlinson, so. Mr. Potter. And, yeah. uh, <laughs> who, who you described it to me as having the chair that was lower than his in his office. Yeah, and <laughs> yeah it was. I mean, you, you sat lower. I mean, that's everything. People, people say, oh, like in the natural, you know, that office is not realistic. Oh, yes, it is. I've been in that kind of office. So. Yeah, well, and it's, um, it's uh, you know, I, I actually, due to winning the Letterman Scholarship and stuff, I got to know the next several department chairmen really well, and they were all great people. Uh, yeah. and, uh, but anyway, you came in and, and, uh, somebody made a remark. It was like, Hey, we were getting ready to leave or something. And you go, yeah, it's one of my, one of the things I like to do is come into the back of the room and sit down and listen to everybody say, Hey, you know, when's this, when's this a hole going to show up or something like that. And I was, I just lost it. I thought that was hilarious. And certainly something I didn't expect from a quote unquote professor at the time, because <laughs> everybody was so, there was a lot of professors there that were you know, pretty old school square. And, yeah, uh, yeah. you know, obviously I took all your classes, so I, I, I really enjoyed it. But, um, anyway, you know. yeah, when I was, when I was back when the world was young, as I say, you know, but I, you know, with the long hair and everything like that, I was probably in some cases when I first got here, maybe just five years older than a lot of the students. So, um, and it was it was fun to just kind of like sit in the back of the room and uh, see what they were going to say about me or the class or <laughs> you know stuff like that. So. Well, genre busting dark comedies of the 1970s and movie comedians of the 1950s. I'll put the link up. Uh, but anything that you see by Wes Gehring, you should probably get it. Be ready to learn a lot and be ready to find out a lot of things outside a movie. That I mean, that's one of the great things I love about reading your books is that you will reference literature or you will reference a radio program or you will reference an article or something that then sends me into a, like a side tangent where I have to go then read that. And I no, I particularly love that. I, I think it's awesome. Yeah. So and they're yeah. witty. They're insightful. Uh, obviously, you're good at it or they wouldn't have let you write 35 of them. <laughs> Well, I always tell my students, you know, nothing's created in a vacuum, and I like to show them what what is happening in other art forms, you know. So um, I always that, and that's usually the trickiest thing. It's not the right thing; it's getting the darn rights to reproduce a picture or something like that of a sculpture or a, 
uh, painting or, you know, in, in this last book, this 50s book, of, you know, uh, basically a children's uh, illustration. So, Well, we got to do this again soon. And I want to do a show where I just pick like 20 films and then bring up the name of them and have you talk at liberty about them because, um, you know, I, I, I just, I love hearing you talk about film. I just can't, I can't get enough of it. So, um, thanks for being, well, my head with is, us. my head is uh, floating up near the ceiling. So, um, but thank you. I appreciate the, the compliments. So. Well, come back anytime. All right. Thank you very much. Hi, I'm Tom Gully, host of The Tom Gully Show, and I'm here to talk to you about the most amazing phenomenon. Uh, you see, although thousands download each episode of The Tom Gully Show, not that many actually like our show on Facebook. So we'd like to try and do something to get more likes and, uh, hey boss, never fear, I got this one solved, you know? Oh, Vinny. Great. Uh, folks, this is Vinny. He does things for the show from time to time, uh, most of which we can't talk about. Uh, Vinny, what's your solution? Okay, what we do is we get a cute little kitty cat, all right? Then, if we don't get enough likes within about five minutes, I twist its little head until it pops. Oh, oh, oh good, good Christ, no! We're not doing something like that. What, what makes you what makes you think something like that would even work? Well, it works when you use a kid instead of a kitty cat. Folks, we'd appreciate it if you'd go and like the Tom Gully show on Facebook. like to thank the amazing Wes Gehring for appearing on the show tonight. To get one of his amazing books, just Google Wes Gehring, that's G-E-H-R-I-N-G, and uh, McFarland, his publisher, or check out the TomGullyShow.com for this podcast and click one of the hyperlinks that we have so, so very thoughtfully and conveniently provided for you. Uh, you will not be sorry you did. With over 35 books, there's something there that will be sure to captivate your interest, and you're welcome for providing you those hyperlinks. You know why we do that? Because everything we do here is classy. We're very, very classy like that. It's class. And I like these other podcasts. Uh, anyway, folks, we'd really appreciate it if you'd share this on your various Facebook or social media platforms. Trying to spread the word means trying to spread our little show here. I really get a lot of email about this part of the show, um, the ending part where I ramble a lot, you know, 
but I'm going to keep this kind of short and pretty clean in case any of the sweet, innocent, virtuous Ball State University students and or faculty are listening so that I can keep up at least the illusion of legitimacy there at the Harvard of the Midwest. Every time I talk to Wes, um, amongst the many things that happen to my brain, I immediately go into like this jag of the music that I used to have in college and I used to listen to when I when I first met Wes. Uh, yes, and it was on a turntable. Yes, an old-fashioned record player in Palmer Hall there. I have uh, pretty much been on a nonstop Southside Johnny and the Asbury Jukes earworm session for the last few days since I recorded this interview. And therefore, I'm feeling, you know, like four million times hipper and cooler than anyone in my immediate area. So I highly recommend, you know, diving deep into the Southside Johnny and the Asbury Jukes uh, library. For those of you youngsters out there that don't listen to anything but pre-programmed electronic beeps and blips, we'd appreciate it if you'd like the Tom Gully show, not me, because that's just crazy uh, to like me, but the show, the Tom Gully show on Facebook, too, and on Twitter, if the mood strikes you. And of course, there's always the TomGullyShow.com. That's where you can find everything about the show. There's the Tom Gully show store, which is down right now. Due to my ongoing fracas with Cafe Press, we'll talk about that another time. And we always encourage you to subscribe on iTunes for free. There's also a way if you go to the TomGullyShow.com where you can subscribe by email, and we email you every new show as it gets done, and it's right there in your email. Follow us on Twitter at Atomic Palooka too, so I can increase my clout and cred ratings because if I get enough points. We're all going to go to the aces. Slapshot reference. Wes, if he's listening, would know that. That'll do it for tonight. I'm out of here. I got to go talk to some people. I'll talk to you much later. Each night, Jay Johnson, the late, great Jay Johnson, brings us in with the truth wagon. Go to jjohnsonmusic.com. And each night, we take you out with Russell Alexander and the Hitman Blues Band. Go to hitmanbluesband.com. And if you go to hitmanbluesband.net, I think you can still get those eight or nine free songs just for signing up for their uh, newsletter because that's how we roll. If it's free, it's for me. And we will see you next time. Well, the bucket lifts a twig for a dog that's nothing big, but he don't want to. And the dog can't grab a cat A raccoon can do all that But he don't want to And I dream of you at night While you hold your baby tight But he don't want you You can see it in his eyes From the way he tells you lies But he don't want you